0: A church is a group of Christians who assemble as an earthly embassy of Christ's heavenly kingdom to proclaim the good news and commands of Christ the King, to affirm one another as his citizens through the ordinances, and to display God's own holiness and love through a unified and diverse people in all the world, following the teaching and example of elders. Creek. It is always a pleasure to be with you. It's been a while since I've been out here and I always love the drive out in the morning and the ability to worship together with you to open God's word and to, to be formed and to live out our faith together. I, I don't know if any of you are on Instagram or not but I am um, occasionally find myself going down rabbit holes and there's a guy that This redneck guy that showed up on my feed—I don't know why he showed up the first time. I know now because I clicked on the on the video, and he um, he generally shows a short clip of someone doing some kind of life hack, right? And and his response—he breaks in. It's you're telling me that for 40 years, and then fill in the blank, and his of whatever that is and ain't no way. And then he proceeds to do it and of course the hack works, right? And I kind of feel like that guy with this series that we're in on Rediscover Church because a series like this, I'm, I partially feel like I'm speaking to the choir because you're here and you're involved, and you feel like, well, these are the people who get it. The people who aren't here are the ones that need to hear this, right? Except, there's a reason why there's that little re at the front of rediscover church, right? Because it's not about being totally ignorant or that we don't have a clue, it's that something sometimes becomes so familiar to us that we miss aspects that we might see if we were coming to it for the first time. So how many of you know that FedEx has a hidden arrow in their logo? Right? A few people do. And once you see it in between the E and the X on FedEx, you will never unsee it. But most of us, until we're told, we don't ever see it because we just read the logo. And that's kind of what we're doing here. It's trying to open our eyes to things that we might have seen but totally overlooked. And to this point, we've looked at the church broadly. What is the church? We've looked last week, Pastor Jeremy looked at who can be part of the church, and today we're looking at the question, why do we gather as a church? And we're gonna be spending most of our time in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25, and you can turn there in your Bibles, and as we, we think about this, as you're, you're, you're turning there, I, as I said, it's kind of weird, you know, at, at least... At some level, you're here, we're gathered, we know that this is important, right? Why, though? Why is it important for us to gather? You know, the cynic might say, well, you're the guy up at the front of the church preaching, so of course you're going to tell us to gather, right? That's your job, isn't it? And others say, well, I can worship on my own. I can go into nature for maybe. That's where I connect with God. I, I take in the, a, a walk in the woods. I don't need to gather. And we need to be able to have an answer for those kinds of things. And, and on the opposite end, maybe you, you know the person who, they come almost purely for the social interaction. And Maybe in a post-COVID world, it's more a form of political protest than it is a belief that I have in who I am. And we need to be able to answer those kinds of things as well. Why do we gather? And I think for many of us in the back of our minds, we have a certain Bible story that's kind of Living there and making us wonder Because in John chapter 4 Jesus meets a woman at a well in Samaria And he says but an hour is coming and It is now here when, all, when the true worshippers Will worship the Father in spirit and in truth And lots and lots of people take that to mean I don't have to go anywhere It's not about the place at all And to us as modern Westerners who are individualists by nature, that makes perfect sense to us. So what do we do? How do we look at this idea of gathering as a church? Let's look to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25 where the writer of Hebrews says this, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, he has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other, and all the more as you see the day approaching." Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your church. I thank you for those people gathered here this morning that have come to worship you and to learn from your word. And I pray that today we would see you more clearly, that we would see how we are to live in light of who you are. And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. It's tricky going into a passage like this in in Hebrews because there is a ton going on here. And we could camp out for a long time, but what we're gonna focus on is the aspect of gathering as the church of Jesus Christ. And verse 25 makes it pretty clear that gathering is a pretty clear part of what churches are supposed to do, right? Right? Where it says, don't neglect, don't abandon gathering together. But what does it also say? It says, as some are in the habit of doing. Now, why would he say that? Because it's a problem. Because this issue of not wanting to gather together has always been an issue for the church. And yet, every book of the New Testament assumes that the church of Jesus Christ is gathering. And when you have little kids, you tell them, you do what I tell you to do because that's the stage of life they're at, right? And they don't need all of the reasons and the backgrounds, but most of us are beyond that point right now. And so we have to, Explorer. And some people use this verse as a bludgeon, telling people that anytime the church doors are open, you better be there. I mean, I grew up in the era of Sunday morning, Sunday school, Sunday church, Sunday night church Wednesday night prayer meeting Oh and there were other things that went on During the week There was a Tuesday night visitation Often there was a Saturday morning Men's breakfast And on and on and on And we Are a very programmed society All of the things, activities Everywhere and that's not what we're talking about When we talk about gathering it's not about taking attendance. It's not sh- about showing up at everything. And it is far deeper than that. So let's dive into the, this passage. The first thing we need to understand about gathering is that we gather to worship God as his people. You see, that, that situation, that, that passage in John chapter four where, where Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, the Samaritan, It's really not a question of do you gather or don't you gather Because The woman at the well says Well we Samaritans worship here and you Jews say it's there And gathering was assumed You see it was a question of identity and worship This woman at the well is a Samaritan Half Jewish And where they're at is a really important place The Gospels call it Sychar. In the Old Testament, it was this town called Shechem. And it's right in between two mountains, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. And it's a really important place. When Abraham first comes from Mesopotamia into the Promised Land, the first altar he builds is on Mount Gerizim, the place where she says, this is where we worship. Jacob would build an altar there. After the exodus, Joseph's bones are buried there. There is a tomb to this day. There. This is the place where Joshua tells the people, choose today between God and the gods of the Amorites. And this is just scratching the surface of all of the things that have happened right at this place. This is an important place. And so this Samaritan woman who's saying, pointing over her shoulder from the well down in the valley up to Mount Gerizim, it's not like a big huge mountain like we think of them. It's a overgrown hill, okay? But she's pointing over her shoulder to the mountain and she's saying, the difference between Jews and Samaritans is where is the proper place to worship? And they had a claim because those altars had built there. And place does matter. Jesus is not saying place doesn't matter so much as he is saying, why do we gather? What happens in worship? What is worship about? That is the primary thing. And the you here is not individual, not me as we think of it. It's you, plural. True worshipers, plural. It's not an issue of gathering or not gathering, but what's going on as we gather. And that's completely in line with our passage in Hebrews because what does the author of Hebrews do? He talks about the sanctuary. And he's talking about the throne room of God, the heavenly temple. And in chapter eight of Hebrews, he explained that the earthly temple was a shadow of that heavenly temple. That it is the way that we see what is going on in eternal realms. And so he's using this thing that is very familiar with them, the way that people gather as his way in and getting to the point, and the point is worship. That's what a temple is for, is worship. And we no longer need priests to sacrifice on our behalf, he says, because Jesus made the ultimate sacrifice for us. That's the beginning of Hebrews 10. And in verse 20, he says that Jesus inaugurates or opens a new way into the temple, through the curtain. This is the curtain between the holy place and the holy of holies in the temple, the place where only the high priests could go, the place where the Ark of the Covenant sat, where God's glory dwelled. And He is saying we get to go there in worship because the temple is the place where God and the people met and the priests would mediate and even they could only go so far but no longer. The author of Hebrews says don't give up gathering together. This is an important thing. It is a sacred thing. In verse 25, he's saying, We still gather to worship. We still come before God as a people to worship. Can we worship alone? Of course we can. Absolutely we can. We can and we should. But as we've seen over the past few weeks, when we become Christians, we become part of the people of God. God's new family, a new kind of family that is oriented toward God in all that we do. And that's the point of a temple. To enter in, to point to God. And so all of the books of the New Testament, in one way or another, point us to a communal worship, to participating together. We started the service by singing today. That's not an accident. Paul says in Ephesians 5.19 and Colossians 3.16 that we are to participate together in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And he goes on in each case to talk about the gratitude that we should have toward God for what he has done for us. That's what worship is for. And when we worship together, when we praise God together, we become one in a way that we can't on our own. We are unified in a way that overcomes difference, division, in a way that binds us together. Because when we worship together, we are the church in a way that it is very hard to be on our own. After all, Jesus himself says that when two or three are gathered, he is in their midst. Why? Because there is something important about that gathering. And all of this points to the A benefit we receive by being together. In those passages where Paul says to sing, in in the Colossians passage, he says that, that we teach and admonish one another through those songs and we are able, as verse 23 of our passage says, let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. So first we worship, and second we hold on to the hope. We learn together. This is a statement of belief about who Jesus is and what he's done, but it is even deeper than that. We are told in verse 22 to draw near with a heart, with a true heart and full assurance of faith. We are told that we are to approach with hearts sprinkled clean, washed in pure water, and all of that is Old Testament language for how the people of God are to gather together. It's holiness language. And by that, I do not mean I am a righteous person who's got everything together. It means I have been cleansed. I have been set apart for God. And the Jews would perform cleansing rites before they, were, they would come into the sanctuary because they were being set apart to God. They were to be distinct from the people around them. And those things were not magical or, or saving rights. They were representations of the claim that God had on them. And how did they know these things? How did they know the content of their faith? Well, they were taught. In fact, Deuteronomy chapter 6 shows that the people were to teach their own families... Day in and day out. As they got up, as they went about their days, as they sat around and talked, they were to be oriented toward God so that as they came together, they would know. And I know that today we can say, okay, I can even see New Testament. It's written to congregations, but they didn't have the New Testament at the time. It was being written. They didn't know. Of course, they had to gather to be taught. But we have the Bible. So I can read it for myself. I can learn for myself. Why do I need to be together to learn? Setting aside any question of of corporate worship. And the truth of the matter is we can, we do learn on our own-ish. Because most of us read when we are looking at the Bible. We, we see what someone else has said and we are learning from the body in that way. But even then, the scriptures themselves admonish us regularly, not just in Hebrews, to gather together. As I said, the Paul's, take Paul's letters they are all written to congregations and they assume gathering to learn as well as to worship. And I think our passage points to the reason why. You see, beyond pointing to God, which is, of course, where we start and the focus, we are formed by God's word, by the teaching. And that our worship itself has content there's a body of belief as the writer of hebrews says our confession of hope it's the things that we believe and we learn these together we have leaders to teach us paul says in ephesians 4 verse 11 that god gives the church apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers well why Why does he do that? Well, he goes on in verses 12 to 14 to say that those those jobs, those offices, those giftings are to equip the saints for the work of the ministry to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. Then we will no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning with cleverness in the techniques of deceit. We need people to teach us because we need to be taught correctly to know what is true and what is not. We can be deceived, it's more than possible, it is probable. In some ways, these lovely little devices are misinformation machines in what they tell us. And teachers can be very convincing in their error. And sometimes it's errors that they believe, and sometimes it's things they don't really believe, but they are using to get what they want. We need to be taught the truth because the truth will set us free as Jesus said and some things in the scriptures are very easy for us to understand. They're straightforward and some things are hard and some of the most well-read teachers and scholars in the world are scratching their heads as to what's going on. And then there's the fact that sometimes the easy ones are the ones that we shy away from because frankly we don't like what they have to tell us. We don't like the implications of those truths. We're quite capable of deceiving ourselves. We are quite capable of coming to wrong conclusions on our own. We're capable of missing the point. We all have blind spots, every last one of us. That's why we call them blind spots, right? Because we can't see them. And that's not me as a preacher up here telling you as a church body, accept everything that the guy up front says. No, that's not the point. Do we give teachers respect for their place? Yes, but no one is infallible except God. And everything that you hear, you should test against scripture. What does the scripture say? If it doesn't make sense, seek clarity. If something smells off to you, well, find out why. Questions are not a problem. I recently was talking with a church in Indiana, and several people there felt like their questions were often not welcome. In other churches that they had been in And that's a tragedy Because God is a God of truth Questions are not the problem Now Asking questions from a wrong heart Or simply to argue a point Maybe But Paul says that the role of the teacher Is to build up the body To reach a unity in faith In the knowledge of God's son To become mature Teachers are to serve the church Allowing it to become what God has called it to be And studying on our own can only take us so far We need other people's insight And understanding We need to make sure that we're seeing things correctly And be reminded of our own blind spots Because we can't see them on our own I need others to point out what I cannot see But don't think of this as learning for learning's sake. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, the author says, since he who promised is faithful. You see, the learning we do is from God's word. It, too, is an act of worship. It is pointed toward God. If Christianity is truly about being with God, about knowing him, and being with God is what salvation means in its essence, then we should want to know everything we can about Him. We don't need to know or understand perfectly, but we need to be on the way. Not all of us are going to be Bible scholars, and that's fine, but we do need to have that posture of learning, of growing in our faith. And Sometimes it's from places we would not expect. Scriptures are full of examples of people learning the truth about God and themselves and the world around them from totally unexpected places like children and donkeys and pagans and the wrong sorts of people like Mary Magdalene. How much more for us, the fellow believers sitting next to us in the pew who has seen God at work in his or her life, We learn to point ourselves faithfully to God. I am trying to discover new things about who God is and what he calls me to every day. New ways of seeing what God is up to that I haven't seen before. And I learn from a variety of sources. But I try to concentrate on the body of Christ, the the specific faith community that I am part of here at Village Bible Church. I love the preaching meetings that I get to be a part of because I learn from the guys at those. I learn from the small groups I have been part of. And sometimes it's unexpected. And I remember, I don't even remember the passage right now, but Pastor Nico at uh, our El Camino campus brought one one of his elders who was gonna be a preacher and he brought out one day he was, he was filling in a guy in his 60s that I didn't, didn't know, and he brought out a connection to the book of Ezekiel that I had never considered before, and I was better because of that interaction with a person in our church who I would have never expected to be the person that I was learning from learning together in those everyday things where we live out our faith, that's important. And that's the third reason that we gather. We gather to worship, to learn, and to live out our faith. And that may sound strange because we're in a room and I'm up here and you're sitting there, but gathering helps us live out our faith in ways that we do not get when we don't meet. It helps us live out our faith on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and so on. The writer says, let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. You see, the worship we do, the learning we do is not centered on us but God, and it is precisely because it is centered on God and not on us that it has implications for the way that we live our lives and our everyday lives. First, we go into his presence, worship. Second, we hold on to the confession of our faith. We learn who God is and what we are to do, and what we are to believe in light of that because he is our hope. And then we consider one another and provoke one another to love and good works encouraging one another we're told that is the great commandment of jesus lived out love the lord your god with all your heart soul mind and strength and the second love your neighbor as yourself jesus says in mark 12 worshiping learning doing our gathering allows us to do that as a group we can encourage one another in ways that are far less likely to happen if we are alone Think about your own habits that changed during the COVID lockdowns, right? What changed in your life? What didn't you do that you had been doing before? And if you talk to people where the COVID lockdowns were longer, it was worse. Talk to an educator right now about behavior of students post-COVID, about learning. I see a few people nodding. It's a very real change. You see, human beings were made for community. We need it even when we don't want it. In fact, we probably need it more when we don't want it. Why do coaches encourage their teams? Why do Teams and groups do things that they do as a group, things that they would not do, they would not participate on, in on their own because there is a formative aspect to those things. And the body of Christ is to encourage one another to be like Christ. That's Paul's message in all of Romans chapter 12. With Romans chapter 12, Paul speaks to presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice, to the renewing of our minds, and then he goes on to say throughout the rest of that chapter, we are not our own. We are part of the body, and we are given gifts and skills to be used in the context of the church to encourage and build up so that we can live out our faith, because when we gather, we encourage one another by our faithfulness to Faithfulness. And we're reminded we are not alone. That God is at work in ways that we may never see otherwise. We might not know the struggle a person has. We might not know how they've overcome if we do not gather, if we do not encourage one another. And when we're tempted by a world around us that is fallen, god's people can encourage us can show us that all is not lost that he can they can remind us that that in jesus the veil is torn we can approach the father there is real hope and in john 17 jesus in the upper room just before he is betrayed and arrested he he prays a prayer that his people, not just the disciples, but us now, the ones who would believe because of the disciples, that we would be one, that we would be united in him and love one another. That's the new commandment he gives in just a couple of chapters before in that same setting in John 14. And that kind of unity, that kind of oneness, the oneness that the Father and the Son have, that abiding in him Will show the world that God loves us. Our unity, our gathering together to encourage one another, does that. It shows the world who God is and what He has done. So, how do we live that out, practically speaking? Well, the writer of Hebrews gives us two things love and good deeds. Not just love one another, not just do good deeds, but provoke one another to love and good deeds. And that's why encouragement works, right? That's why teams do those things that they do because it spurs one another on to be more than we would be on our own. It's why we gather. Our worship and our learning conforms us together into the image of Christ. It builds us up into one another as his body. And the more time we actually spend doing these things, the more we come to care for one another, the more we are conformed to the image of Christ, the more we are changed. Love one another, do good deeds. And this is not just some ancient thing that those first century people thought. Neuroscientists tell us that our brains have this thing called a a mirror neuron. And there's debate as to how they actually work. But the idea in its simplest form is this. We were built to learn by observing. We're hardwired to do so. That we become By watching and participating together, we are shaped by these things. So learning, the learning part of point two is not just an academic exercise. Oh, you got to know this stuff in order to pass the test. It is participating in the doing, not just possibly observing Because our faith is not simply a set of ideas Or even ideals It is living as Jesus lived Because we are his Because he has redeemed us And given us the ability to be with God And that when we do that Here and now on this earth In our relationships with one another With our families, with our neighbors With the people we like And even the ones we don't we proclaim who God is. You see, Jesus calls us to a different sort of life, not one removed from the world around us, not one passive, but a vibrant, life-giving, life-affirming, loving life that works for the good of others, even when those others don't recognize that. Isn't it the case that Christians who refuse to be a part of the body are the ones that tend to get mean and cynical, and their faith gets atrophied. That their lives seem to shrivel and close in around them, that they come to not love their neighbor but hate them. And that's not what God calls us to do. And when we find ourselves fixed on the problems in the world and they're real, the difficulties that we face in life and how the world around us seems to have abandoned God like that overnight, we can be overwhelmed. But it's really interesting. I, I, I listened to an, an interview for my job this week of a pastor in London who just wrote a book about how the year 1776 is a year that shaped the post-Christian world that we live in. And he looked all around the world and did a deep dive. And so the interviewer asks, so how are you, in light of all of this stuff, where's the hope? And he said, as a guy who looks at all of these big things, well, the hope I see is in the small things, in the church that I'm part of, As I watch the people of God gather and care for one another. That's where the hope is. Because God's people living together as God intended, being loving, doing good deeds, well, we make a difference even if there are problems all around, even if we don't see. And if we aren't characterized by love and good deeds, have we really worshipped? Have we really learned who God is And what he's done for us I think it is no coincidence that verse 25 As we close ends with All the more as you see the day of approaching He's speaking of the day of Christ's coming A day at once glorious and filled with difficulty Because things are going to get tough at the end things are, we're told over and over again, and aren't we closer than they were? You see, we need one another. We need to gather, to worship, to learn, to live our faith, because Christianity is not a solo endeavor. We need one another, even if we're not inclined. Even if we've been hurt by the church, even if we think we don't need one another, Jesus says we do, and He calls us together in oneness. It's not an easy path, but it's the one He gave us. And when we come together, we can find joy even in the difficulties, we can find support and encouragement, and we can be the light of Jesus to a world that needs it. We-